0: this episode is brought to you by rosarium publishing small press rosarium publishing is a black-owned company that is committed to diversity they currently have over 50 titles in the sci-fi steampunk and comic book genres available by writers and artists from all over the world and many of their writers are women of color we need to support that so please donate to rosarium Publishing. The next level Indiegogo campaign today so that they can continue to put out great work by marginalized voices. Go to rosarianpublishing.com and click on the Indiegogo donate button. Thanks for tuning in to this BGM Podcast Extra featuring comic book writer Greg Pock. Greg sat down and chatted with us about his latest Kickstarter venture. It's quite a unique one. He's best known for comic books such as Planet Hulk, World War Hulk, Batman Superman, and Storm. However, he's done very well in the Kickstarter space with projects such as Code Monkey Save World, The Princess Who Saved Herself, and ABC Disgusting with such successful kickstarters and one including one of the best and highest grossing original comic projects of all time, Code Monkey Save World, he decided to give out tips, secrets, and in-depth information about how to run a successful Kickstarter. He comes on our show and talks about that along with myself and co hosts Mel and JN Monk. So if you're someone that's interested in starting their own Kickstarter, doesn't have to be about comic books. It can be about anything that's related to fundraising and crowdfunding. This is definitely a podcast you want to listen to. He goes over budgeting. He goes over marketing. He goes over the planning stages, the whole nine. So take some good copious notes. I think you're going to get a lot of valuable information. And thanks again for tuning in and hope you get a lot out of this episode. Enjoy welcome to this segment of the black girl nerds podcast my name is jamie i am your host for all you comic book fans out there you're going to be really psyched about this segment because we have a comic book writer who is known for really great comic books such as princess who saved herself hulk batman superman my personal favorite storm we have writer greg pack here on the black girl nerds podcast thank you so much greg for coming on our show
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a thrill.
0: And we have our co-hosts Mel and JN Monk here with us. Thank you guys for coming on. Yay! Yay. Hey. Glad to be here.
1: <laughs> hey, yeah.
0: So, Greg, you are doing so awesome in the Kickstarter space. It's really super impressive. You have a new Kickstarter that is very unique. It's a Kickstarter on how to do a Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you're you're giving crowdfunding tips on how to optimize your fundraising. So, can you elaborate more on this project and how you came up with this idea?
1: Yeah, you bet. Well, I guess it started way back when I was working on the Code Monkey Save World Kickstarter, which was a graphic novel based on the songs of Jonathan Colton. And since Jonathan is an Internet superstar musician who has a really incredible fan base, that thing blew up pretty quickly, and we just learned a heck of a lot running that campaign. And at a certain point during that campaign, I found myself thinking, wow, we've, we've, we we've should write a book. <laughs> Over the years, I've just been really grateful to all of the creators more experienced than me who have shared information with me. I mean, there's no way I would have made it anywhere close to where I am if it hadn't been for fellow creators sharing, you know, key information, just really detailed, practical stuff. And uh, so I tried to, you know, do the same over the years. I mean, way back when I ran a website called Film Help that shared no budget filmmaking advice. It's like The pros with Fred Van Lente. And uh, so the idea of doing something to share this, you know, Kickstarter information I was getting was sort of in my head. But the idea of you know gearing up to do another print book was kind of formidable, and I, I you know worked on a number of other things in the meantime. But then about a year ago, actually Ms. Carmel Vixen, who is the originator of Black Comics Month on Twitter, mentioned to me that I should I should think about doing a, a book of third advice as an ebook. And you know when she said ebook, that kind of just rang a bell. I suddenly realized that that I, I hadn't thought about doing it as an ebook before, and that just changed all the numbers. Because an ebook would be something that I could produce. It would it would shave a, probably one to two months off of the schedule because I wouldn't have to worry about making print copies. It would make the ask for the Kickstarter much smaller because I wouldn't have to worry about printing and shipping. And also, just the idea that it's a how to book like this on an internet subject is likely full of links. And uh, you know, so, if you're reading this thing as a PDF, you click on those links and you know, get stuff. There may be tricks and other things you're going to cut and paste and uh, make that very easy. You know, at a certain point I was like, let's, you know, let's do this. (laughs) So here we are.
0: Awesome. And I know that your space is primarily in the print space of comics. and, And I know that that's the most expensive part of comics is printing color pages specifically. Should an indie comic creator decide first if they want to go to the print book path of comics or go down the the web comic path and and does one have more advantages than the other
1: well you know that's all uh, i'll cover a lot of this kind of stuff in just the very first chapter you know when you're trying to decide what you want to do as a kickstarter project i mean everybody has a dream project right everybody has a hugely ambitious dream project and Lots of times, that hugely ambitious dream project is not really the first project you should try to do. I mean, you should always be working on it, but it's not necessarily the first project you want to try to get out in the world. Um, when I was in film school, I, I was sure I was going to be that kid who uh, came out of film school with a feature film, you know? And I was so cocky. And I was not that kid, you know? <laughs> so much to learn. And I ended up doing, I did a ton of shorts. I did, I, I, I mean, I can't even keep track. I did something like 20 different short films, some of them that only cost like $200 to make. Just going through that process of doing a whole bunch of short projects meant that by the time it came for me to do my fee- my first feature, I was I, I was much better prepared to make the most of it. And also, I had built the relationships and also started to even build an audience by doing all those shorts and taking them around to film festivals. Comics, I think, you know, doing short projects makes a lot of sense when you start off. And print is actually it's expensive, but it's not necessarily the biggest line item in the different kickstarters I've done. In fact, it's, it's not the biggest line item. If you're printing enough copies, the, the individual cost of each issue actually, or each copy goes down pretty precipitously. I mean, if you're doing short runs, it can be very expensive on a per issue basis, but even so, or a per copy basis, but even so, shipping tends to be, you know, the biggest line item, the biggest single line item for some of these things was uh postage mm. just because if you're going to ship out a bunch of packages, it really stacks up, particularly when you've got overseas packages. And also if you're using a fulfillment house, you've got, you know, uh, per item costs of, of fulfillment of packing all that stuff and getting it out there. So shipping and, you know, actually shipping is a huge line item in Kickstarters so. uh, and also paying your collaborators and um, paying your collaborators is really important. You know, just figuring out how to, and if there's no money, You know, figuring out some kind of profit share, you know, you have to, you have to make it possible for people to make the time to actually do the thing or the thing just won't get done, particularly if it's, if it's not super short, you know. But to kind of back up, what I'm going to do in the very first chapter of the book is, is, is actually get right into all this in some really practical ways, looking at different budget levels for different sizes of Kickstarters. So just so you can see, you know, where the money goes and what it takes to produce a a 20 page comic versus a 80 page graphic novel. Everybody wants to do a big dream project. I do too. You know what I mean? Everybody's in a rush. Mm -hmm. I'm in a huge rush. I want to do all my big dream projects right now. But sometimes it's important to do smaller projects first or also just to it's creatively really, really smart to do a bunch of small projects before you do your big dream project just because then you're better at what you do so that your big dream project has a chance of being much better than it than it would be otherwise. When I was in film school, I, I thought for sure I was going to be that kid who came out of film school with a big feature film, and I was not because I had so much to learn. I made a million short films when I was in film school, some as few as $100, and doing all those shorts was just really valuable. It taught me so much, and it helped me – Build relationships and also even start to build an audience. So that by the time I came out and made my feature film, I was just much better equipped not only to handle it creatively, but to get it out in the world. In the same kind of way, doing smaller scale publishing projects, like if if you want to do a Kickstarter, if you've got that big dream project, if it's your first project, it's a good idea to kind of think really seriously and look at some numbers, and we'll help you do this in the book and figure out what is realistic. You know, like how many backers do you? Think you can get with just your existing networks, the folks that you know, the folks you know, just just friends and family, basically people that you can re- reach out to. How many individual backers do you think you can get? How much money does that represent, and how big a project does that enable you to do? And if it doesn't enable you to do that big project, then I think it's smart to start thinking about like how, what kind of project can I do that I will be just as passionate about, that I can actually finish, that I can actually do given my resources right now. Kickstarter is amazing because it does allow that possibility to grow your audience. In fact, the tools are perfect for that. People like to spread word about Kickstarters, but it's not like a magic money machine where you just, you know, jump in there and suddenly everybody knows about it and everybody automatically spreads the word. It takes a lot of work. And what it really, I think what Kickstarter really allows you to do is to mobilize the folks who already like what you do. Or who are already ready to support you. It gives you the tools to, to reach out to them and let them support you. It also lets you build on that, but it's rare to, you know, quadruple the size of your audience in your first go. You know what I mean? Like you can, if you, if you do it really well, you can definitely enlarge your audience, but I think it's just realistic to think about what's a project I can do making the most of the audience I already have or the friends I already have really to start with. And then you build step by step with your future projects, but we're gonna you know look at that in incredibly practical ways. You know, just look at look at the dollar amounts of those different line items in your budget and see how that relates to how many backers you need to have, what kind of rewards would allow you to generate that kind of money, what the rewards themselves cost, and how that factors back into the budget. All of that can get very complicated, but we'll uh, you know in Kickstarter Secrets we'll try to make it as simple as possible and show you you know concrete examples so you can wrap your head around uh, what all those decisions involve.
0: Excellent. Jan?
2: One of the big things of any crowdfunding uh, campaign is promotion. I know many creators, myself included, are often unsure of how to promote because they don't want to deluge people with advertisements on their social media. What advice would you give to those who have ongoing content but aren't sure how to get more eyeballs on it?
1: Oh yeah, I'm. Well, I'm. We're all in the same boat here, you know. Like I'm. (laughs) I've been thinking about this myself this afternoon when I'm thinking about like what I'm gonna say about my uh, Kickstarter secrets campaign, and you know, like how do you tweet about it without getting repetitive? How do you keep things fresh? How do you make people interested? How do you get people to to pay attention? It's interesting too because I think different social networks are are shifting a bit and it's becoming harder to uh, get responses to individual posts. Like Facebook most notoriously has uh, shifted up their algorithm so that the people who have chosen to follow you won't necessarily see the stuff you post. And that can be frustrating. So here are are a couple of practical things. First off, don't be shy about telling people what you have going on and getting excited about it and, and posting about it. It's, you know, like if you have a if you're on Twitter, if you post once about it in the morning and then you're shy and you don't post about it till the next the next day in the morning and then, you know, maybe you post on the third day also in the morning That means you have probably only reached a tiny fraction of your audience because people log into social networks at different times during the day. So if you're only posting in the morning, you're only hitting people who are up at that hour in the morning. you got to do it a few different times during the day. You know, find a way to vary it up and keep it interesting for folks who might be seeing it all. But even so, the people who are following you presumably are following you because they're interested in you and your work. So. As long as you're not incessantly posting about it every ten seconds with the same tweet. <laughs> you should take advantage of that. I mean that that's why they're following you, you know. And so you wanna you wanna make sure that folks do have an opportunity to, to see what you've got going on. So that's one thing. Don't be shy. Two, use images. And I don't I, I'm guilty of not doing this as much as I should, probably. I mean there have been tons of studies and everything else and you can see all the social networks are actually trending towards this, that people respond to posts that have images more than they do to pure text mm-hmm. posts. So if you can work a fresh image into your posts, um, that will help a lot. The other thing is don't spam tweet. You know, don't, if you don't know somebody, it's a, it's not generally a good idea to, You know, tweet them and ask them to look at your Kickstarter or back your Kickstarter or retweet it. Even if you get, you know, that semi famous person to retweet your Kickstarter, it probably won't do anything for you because. (laughs) I, I, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Retweets from folks are fantastic and you want those, but they really work the best when they come from people who are going to say something personal and who are invested in your work. You know what I mean? Like, like having somebody just retweet your, your thing. Yes, you've got a good chance of somebody seeing it who had never have seen it before, but that kind of thing works so much better if it is somebody who actually knows you and who is voluntarily posting about it and saying something about it because they actually really like it. So you're better off, you know, just working with the friends you've got and trying to get, you know, the, the folks you already know to help, help you spread the word. The best way to do that really is to post interesting content. I mean, one of the things that I found, and actually one of the things that kind of inspired me to do the go ahead with Kickstarter Secrets was that during my ABC disgusting Kickstarter, which was for a children's book about disgusting things, you know, during that middle part of the campaign, that second and third week of the campaign, when there's just naturally kind of a little bit of a desert there, <laughs> where you know the initial excitement of the campaign has worn off a bit, you don't necessarily have the next big thing to announce, and there's a kind of a lull in the campaign. I got on Twitter late at night and I um, just one day and I kind of almost you know just on an impulse started. Doing Kickstarter tips, you know, talking about like the campaign and stuff I'd learned, and and posting different tips for how you know things that I'd learned over the years about running campaigns, little small things that could fit into a tweet. I, I was actually, I mean, I was just doing it just because it's kind of fun, and I like you know sharing that kind of stuff. But I was also you know linking to uh, the current campaign, and I got a pretty nice little bump of pledges because I was talking about stuff that was of interest to folks you know what i mean i was giving sharing information i think is attractive you know so if there's some way that your project you can share something new you know sharing information about your process you know posting uh, images of you know your artist's work in progress or or different kinds of things like that that kind of stuff i think is a little more attractive than than just another tweet saying hey by the way don't forget i still have this kickstarter going so those are just a, a few thoughts right there
2: It's often said there's nothing out there for kids, but the numbers alone show that's not true. As a creator of all-ages content yourself, do you believe that such media gets the attention and respect it deserves?
1: It's interesting because the biggest-selling comics in America are all-ages books done by uh, Rania Telgemeier, right? You know, like Smile and her other books. I mean, she dominates that best-selling chart of graphic novels month after month after month those are books those either all ages or young adult uh, i'm not sure exactly how they're they're classified but they're you know they're they're for kids and for young adults and those things sell like crazy in bookstores i mean they also sell in comic stores but i think the bulk of those sales are are done through bookstores uh but the direct market which refers to comics that are sold in comic book stores has sort of notoriously been a little bit harder to crack for all ages material which is of course sad because comics should be for kids as you know, as well as everybody, but the demographics of you know of the direct market have trended, uh, I guess, since the you know '70s. So, I mean, comics in the comics back in the day were sold in Seven Elevens and at newsstands, and they were all. I'm um, just about all comics were all ages, and then at a certain point, that market changed, and comics started to be sold primarily in you know individual story in, in standalone comic shops, which was kind of amazing in a lot of ways because um, you ended up with more mature comics and. Got to explore all kinds of stuff, but it also, uh, the circulation for, uh, comics for kids, I think, declined. And, you know, that's an ongoing challenge. I mean, there are tons of comic stores that I know and love that are doing an amazing job reaching out to, uh, to, uh, families and they've got amazing kids sections and they do great. So it's not that, you know, it's not that that's not a market. It's not that that's, that that can't work. It's just it takes a little bit more work for stores, I think, to think about that. It's also due to the fact that I think, you know, like I, I guess studies show that a lot of books for kids are bought by, by moms and moms are more likely to go to a, uh, a bookstore than a comic book store. So that's where, you know, that's part of why these uh, graphic novels for kids that are put out by book publishing companies as opposed to specifically comic publishing companies tend to do so well in those bookstores. So there's a whole lot of things going on there. The medium itself is perfect for all ages, you know, I and I've had an amazing time doing the kids' books that I've done, which are kids' picture books, but they're also comics. They've got word balloons in them as well. Um, I definitely have other stuff that I definitely want to do. I mean, the, the success of those Kickstarters also tells me there is a hunger out there for this kind of material, particularly when you've got, you know, this kind of material with diverse characters. And so that's been – I mean – that's another reason why Kickstarter has been so amazing because it's you know you're able to kind of prove that that audience that you know is out there <laughs> is out there, you know you, it's it's proof of concept and hopefully that'll it's that that's one of those things that will contribute towards um you know more doors opening and other you know in the in brick and mortar stores and elsewhere.
2: Earl Everett, the original mastermind excello, Cello, from the days of Timely Comics. Amadeus Chill offered a fresh new spin on a character and concept that had all been forgotten. Are there any other characters or concepts from comics past that you'd love to bring or see someone else bring into the modern day?
1: That's a that's a great question. Yeah, back in the day, I mean, I got tapped to uh, take one of these old Marvel names, uh, as you say, Mastermind Excello, and reimagine him with a new character. And that was the birth of Amadeus Cho. I mean, I love doing that. I love that Amadeus Cho character, and I'm just blown away by how much Marvel has let me do with him. You know, the fact that he's now the new Hulk is just tremendous and having a blast on that totally awesome Hulk book. Hope you all are reading it. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, like that kind of thing of taking those, you know, legacy names and stuff and finding fun new things to do with them, I think is great. I don't actually have any that are, you know, like in my head that I'm I'm dying to, to jump on. I mean, I've had a lot of opportunities over the years to play with a lot of different characters in fun new ways. Probably the most I did was in uh, – the Extreme X-Men book I did for Marvel a while back, which had Dazzler leading a team of X-Men around the world hunting down evil, <laughs> evil <laughs> alternate world Xaviers. Nice. <laughs> Ten evil saviors, right? And so it was all this, you know, they kept going to all these alternate realities. And so I kind of got to do what you're talking about in every single issue. We had a, uh, a Western issue with a Cyclops, with a sort of a, a farm kid Wolverine and a Cyclops sheriff. And we did a, God, what else did we do? We had a, uh, a half Japanese Namor in a revisionist, you know, or, or a revisionist history story set you know with the idea that he had he'd been found by japanese sailors instead of american sailors and and fought for imperial japan during world war ii and yeah we had a uh, buffalo soldier cyclops an african-american cyclops who actually became dazzlers love interest in the story so i yeah i I, i've that kind of that kind of stuff oh yeah and then we had our uh, we had Governor General James Howlett of an alternate universe Canada, who was a, a gay hero who was whose lover was Hercules, and that was, those characters were just so much fun to write. Yeah, so I guess I mean I've, I've had lots of opportunities to run with that kind of stuff. I haven't had any other. I guess I haven't had characters. Oh, you know what? I you know actually the one that I would the most want to do more with is Wong. From uh, the Doctor Strange mythos, um, I got to write the Doctor Strange season one book, which was the retelling of Doctor Strange's origin. Emma Rios drew it, and it was just a, a fun experience. But one of the big things that we did is we reimagined that relationship between Doctor Strange and Wong. You know, and in the and a lot of the old comics, Wong is sort of the you know the inscrutable manservant, you know, who calls Doctor Strange master. And as an Asian American, that always rubbed me the wrong way when I was growing <laughs> up. I was like, come on. <laughs> you know but it, it, you know they let me go you know they let me do fun stuff and we, we made him a fellow student rather than a servant. you know so he's a fellow he's a contemporary of Dr. Strange's. He's a fellow student when Strange shows up to train with the ancient one and they become big rivals because Wong has I mean and the fun twist I put on it was that Wong has the pure heart, but he doesn't have the discipline like he's not he doesn't have the he, he, he's not good with the, uh, with the homework. Like he doesn't sit down and memorize the spells properly and everything, you know what I mean. And and strange is the opposite. He's really great with the homework and the memorization of the spells, but he doesn't have the pure heart. Like he's 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 using this magic instrumentally rather than for for the right reasons. And so the two of them have to kind of clash and bump up against. They drive each other crazy, and it was just a ton of fun. So you know, if I if I were to do anything more with old characters, I I mean Wong is very high on my list of characters. I'd love to keep doing stuff with. I think it'd be a blast to do a story with a. Uh, Strange and Wong is partners and paranormal investigators.
3: So just to go way back in the past, <laughs> actually it's not <laughs> that far back, but for people who may not know, you ran two successful Kickstarter campaigns for works based off of Jonathan Colton's songs. And you talked a little bit about Cold Monkey earlier. So can you talk about how you developed the idea for not only, you know, doing a graphic novel for Cold Monkey Save World and a children's book for The Princess Who Saved Herself, but also deciding to take those ideas to Kickstarter.
1: Yeah. um, Well, Jonathan and I actually, I had a big leg up because Jonathan and I actually went to college together. So I'd known him for years and years. We'd fallen out of touch, but then we kind of bumped into each other in New York and, and started hanging out. And at a certain point, I realized, hey, you know, that all these songs that he'd written were story songs. They all had these great characters and they all had these kind of just tremendous, big genre hooks, you know what I mean? He had stories Mm -hmm. about lovelorn supervillains and creepy dolls and giant squid and this code monkey character. And the more I thought about it, I was like, these things could really fit together and make a story. I mean, you've you've got kind of, we could do a really fun shared universe with all these different characters. I actually initially thought of it as a supervillain team up. I actually tweeted him about it. And then he tweeted back and he said, let's do it. And so we did. I think from the very beginning, we just naturally thought of it as a Kickstarter project. I think partly because you know Jonathan is has come up through social media and through the internet. I mean, he's one of the first musicians to uh, build a career by posting songs online and just you know step by step building a career with the help of the internet. So he's got a uh, these tremendous mailing lists and tremendous mm-hmm. relationships with his fans, and it just seemed that we had the chance to go directly to them and fund this thing. And and at the same time, I'd you know I was <clears throat> I'd been. You know, building my own career and, you know, building a presence online. And, and also I just had a real, I mean, I'd come up with a, with that sort of DIY mentality of, you know, just find a way to make your project and get it out in the world. I mean, back in the day when I made my feature film Robot Stories, we got some distribution offers, but in the end, we self distributed just because it made the most sense. I, you know, we, I built the, I'd already built these relationships with a lot of these different venues and, and I had the mailing lists that we'd accumulated during our, um, our festival runs. And and I was just, you know, that, that whole idea of going out there and, and, and making and distributing a thing Mm -hmm. on your own is very appealing to me. So we went for it and it, uh, you know, we had no idea how it would go. We were very hopeful and we did our homework to make sure that, you know, we were as better, as well prepared as we could be. I think we had a goal of 39,000, which seemed like a lot, but seemed ballpark because. Creators, comics creators with similar careers to mine, had recently done kickstarters that had, you know, gotten up into the high, high five figures and even six figures. So we were cautiously optimistic, and then the thing blew up. I mean, I. There was a lot of serendipity to that. You know what I mean? It's, it's not, I don't necessarily ever expect to have another Kickstarter that is that big just because that hit at the right time mm-hmm. for a number of different reasons. You know what I'm saying? And we're hugely grateful to all the folks who spread the word about it and, and everybody who backed it. I mean, it was amazing, but we learned so much from doing that. And to, you know, e- even if I never hit that level, I think, you know, we have, we've, we've learned enough to figure out how to make the most of whatever audience I do have at any given time point in time. Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of what I think Kickstarter is all about. So yeah, keep doing that and sharing information about it.
3: Okay. And it seems like more and more creators are taking their work straight to Kickstarter. I mean, I feel like this year alone, I spent way too much money, (laughs) on (laughs) way more money than I should have. And it's only April, but like, I can't resist. So how do you envision this affecting the future of comics?
1: Yeah, well, you know, Kickstarter is a funny thing because it is just amazing to be able to do the project you want to do the way you want to do it. But uh, at the same time, sometimes with a project, you really, some, some projects are, are maybe it's, it's a better idea to do them in other ways. You know what I mean? Like not every project is going to make sense. I've got ongoing comic series that I figured out how to make that make sense with Kickstarter to do an ongoing series of you know, of, of floppies. Just you know, you start to do a, a budget for just mailing something out to people six times will kill you. You know what I mean? Like if you wanted to do six separate issues, so things like that are uh, are tricky. You know, and also sometimes you want to work with. Certain companies, because there are certain editors there who you really want to learn from, you know, and I've learned so much from working on all the projects I've worked with at all the traditional publishing houses I've worked with. So that's another, you know, strong reason to do a project outside of Kickstarter. Also, Kickstarter projects will tend to take many times more hours out of your, your day than, a, uh, than just a regular work for hire writing gig, for example. I mean, the rewards are, can be astronomical. So I've never regretted an instant, any of the minutes I spent on a, any of my Kickstarters, but that's also something to take into account. They're not necessarily mm-hmm. going to be for everybody. And then finally, running a Kickstarter requires you to have a, you know, to, to really enjoy doing a whole lot of other things other than just making the book. You know, you have to be your own publicist. You have to enjoy organizing things and, Working in Excel and budgeting stuff, and you know managing people, and uh, you know and 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 getting things done on time. You have to be the producer and the editor and everything else, and you know that's not necessarily going to be compatible with every creator. Not everybody has the interest or the um, proclivity for that kind of work. So it's not necessarily going to be for everybody for every project. But that's all fine. I, I mean, I think what's great about Kickstarter is that it provides another venue for. Independent creators to get their stuff out into the world, a venue that wasn't there before. I mean, it just wasn't. I mean, people definitely were self publishing, and, you know, a lot of people have done that brilliantly over the years. But Kickstarter just helps so much with that whole process. Just the tools they provide are invaluable. And the fact that you can use those tools, not just for this one project, but to kind of keep building, you know what I mean? If you're smart about it. And one of the great things about the Kickstarter Secrets books is that I'm going to, if we hit our, our stretch goals, knock on wood, I'll be interviewing some creators who have done amazing work building Kickstarter into a regular part of their ongoing careers. Folks like uh, C. Spike Trotman, you know, Love who her. is uh, – yeah, exactly. She's amazing and she's – so she's she's almost entirely independent. I mean yeah, uh, the work that she does common. is uh, – you know, she – yeah, I don't, I, I can't, off the, I mean, I, I could be wrong about this, but off the top of my head, I don't think she's done any work for higher stuff for <clears throat> any of the big publishers. But she's, she's huge. She's huge. She's raised, I think, over 600000 on wow. Kickstarter over the years. And yeah, yeah. So she's figured it, she's got a machine. She's figured it out. She's got an ongoing series of Kickstarters that she does. She does one or two a year. And they, they consistently do very well. And now she's even, you know, publishing other people's stuff. You know, I think, in fact, I think she just posted on Twitter today that one of the projects that she did, there was a web series that she uh, ran the Kickstarter to do a print edition of. And that got nominated for an Eisner this year. Wow. So without Kickstarter, it's, you know, who knows whether or not that print edition would have happened in this way. You know what I'm saying? So it opens doors and it makes it possible for, more folks to get stuff out to more people. I mean, the thing about comics is that a very small percentage of folks around the world actually buy and read comics. But there are millions more who would if they knew about stuff and had access to it and could get their hands Mm -hmm. on it. You know what I mean? Like Everybody loves these characters. Everybody, you know, like the (laughs) mainstream media is dominated by superheroes. Comics are part of everybody's vocabulary. Everybody grew up with stuff like Peanuts and Aaron Magruder and everybody else. So it's part of our, you know, it's part of our visual culture. It's part of everybody's childhood and growing up. But people don't make a habit of buying it because it's, it requires a lot of effort. It it almost requires you making it a hobby to collect comics in order to read comics, you know? It really does. Um, Yeah. I mean, and that's, and and God bless all those folks who do that, you know, I mean, because you, you, you are why I am able to, Pay rent, you know. Um, thank you, but but I love the fact that you know Kickstarter and other tools in the digital world have have helped to expand that audience. Some, you know, uh, there are tons of people who bought the Code Monkey book who hadn't who don't regularly buy comics, you know, and a bunch of those folks ended up uh, buying um, the Princess Who Saved Herself and the ABC Disgusting books, and hopefully they'll they'll keep jumping on with other comics projects I do, you know. So anything that lets you get your work out there To new readers and Mm -hmm. also serve the existing readers, you've got is tremendous.
3: Thank you. All right, my last question is actually a two part question, and I think of these as my nerdy comic book store questions. Who is your favorite comic book character, and whose story would you like to see turned into a movie?
1: Well, I'm going to answer Amadeus Cho for both of those, of course.
3: I would love that, (laughs) too. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's very self-serving, but but it's true. It's true. If they
3: were going to make a Hulk movie, I would petition so hard for it to be about them.
1: Yeah, it would be amazing. I am, and I I'm available for any uh, script writing <laughs> services or walk on roles you may have. We need uh, kids.
3: We need kids in Hulk costumes to petition outside of Hollywood because you can't say no. You're going to make those kids cry. Come on. <laughs> <Mm-mm>. <laughs>
1: That character's just been so much fun to write. And, and, you know, like I say, I've been hugely grateful to all the Marvel editors who have been so supportive of that character and, and the fact that he's gone as far as he has. I mean, he's already on a TV show. He plays, you know, he's on one of the cartoon shows. He's been in, uh, he's been in one of the animated shows. He's, I think people put him in the novel, Peter David put him in the novelization of the Hulk book, the Hulk movie a few years back.
2: Oh, yeah, I remember that. But it was Martin Starr in the film for some reason.
1: Yeah, well, I think what Peter did is he saw the original screenplay and he just decided he would make that character for Abadeus, but he didn't know who was going to play him in the movie. So it's not like they – that's not an actual case of whitewashing, thankfully, because the movie, I think, had been cast – like, the movie is not based on that book. The book is based on the screenplay. <laughs> so so the book and the movie, are, I think, are both uh, interpretations of that. Uh, yeah, anyway, so, yeah, that actor is not Amadeus Cho. He has never been cast as Amadeus Cho, and let's not get worried about that yet. Yeah, uh, other whitewashed so,
0: characters to think about.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. so many. <laughs>
0: you,
1: know, and, you know, we got a character named Helen Cho who showed up in that Avengers movie, you know, really? I mean, that's the, the name of Amadeus's mom, so who knows about that. Wasn't
3: there, like, a line in Winter Soldier where they didn't directly mention him, but they indirectly mentioned him? Oh,
1: really? Was there something? Yeah. Oh, is this? Was, did somebody talk about like Cho Industries or something like that? Is no,
3: that it was like. Oh, was a, kid? a Yeah, kid? they. Said a kid yeah, at, uh, yeah. Where, where,
1: where did they say that was? Did they say? Uh, it was.
3: It's somewhere in the Midwest. I want to say like Iowa, maybe. Oh,
1: because no, I can't remember. It's technically from Arizona, so if they said Arizona, I'd be jumping up and down.
3: Somewhere, some but, all but, of that but, is the same to me. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It was it was Iowa. A lot of people a lot of people think it might have been a, a reference to Nomad instead. So, uh,
3: oh. well, I went show because I was like, yeah, this exists in this universe
0: in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we'll not come with not come with. So I have to ask this final question as a huge fan of Storm, which I was so sad when Storm ended. Are we going to see Storm come back in any form? You did such a great job on that comic. I really miss it, and I'm still in tears right now that I don't get to see it each month at my favorite comic book store. So any news about Storm that you know of?
1: Oh, you, you mean as a as a yeah, solo, as a solo, solo book?
0: book, yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know that she's – well, yeah, of course, Yeah. I mean, here I am. I, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you if I did because I would be <laughs> secrecy. But uh, Yeah, so I – I am sure that in the fullness of time, I mean, and this is just me talking, but I'm sure that that, you know, that character is huge. Right. And in the fullness of time, there will be another, you know, storm series. I can't say, you know, I'm not I'm not making those decisions. I don't know where and when and how that will happen. But it's inevitable, I think, just, you know, that's a character that's so strong. People love that character, too. So many creators love that character. I uh, I
0: don't know why uh, she does not have a solo book at this point. And why it well, you so know, it's so um,
1: even
0: happen in the first
1: place. Mm-hmm. It's all, you know, it's all step by step. I mean, the great thing about it's interesting because just in the last few years, you know, there's been a real concerted effort everywhere to, you know, people, have you know, like diversity has been talked about a lot. You've seen a lot of amazing books put out and uh, a lot of amazing creators, you know, hired and. Folks are also, you know, just doing tremendous stuff, uh, you know, independently. I mean, Mar- Marjorie Lou just got nominated for two Eisners for Monstrous, for Monstrous yeah. you know what i Yeah. Just, like, tremendous stuff going on. So it feels like there's this kind of critical movement going on right now, and there is. At the same time, it's always been happening, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, from, you know, I, I've been working in comics 10 years now. I've been reading comics, you know, God, I I, I won't even say how long because, because I'm an <laughs> old man. Uh, but... uh but constantly, you know, folks are doing really daring things and introducing, you know, amazing characters. And you know, and sometimes they catch on, and sometimes we we end up with these, you know, amazing things. And you know, sometimes they don't. But still, it's like that effort's being made. The audience is being built step by step. Inevitably. It's just because that's it's the world, you know, and the world will end up in those books, and you know, inevitably that will continue. Of course, it doesn't happen as fast as we want, but great creators are doing it all the time, you know. And I think, you know, as as readers, we just gotta you know seek it out and support it when it comes. And I thank you so much for supporting that Storm book so much. You guys were amazing with that, so uh, you know, you've got all my appreciation for that. And and it's not wasted, you know what I mean. It's like You know, one thing I think about all the time is I've, so I've written Storm. I wrote a Storm solo book. I wrote a War Machine solo book Mm -hmm. for a year. I wrote a Turek book for a year. And Turek is a character. It's a valiant character. He's a Native American dinosaur hunter. And I, I, I wrote Magneto Testament, which is the origin story of, of probably the biggest Jewish character in comics, you know. So over the years, I've had all these opportunities to write all of these really interesting diverse characters those were all created years ago you know what i mean like decades ago so stuff that happens now will reverberate and come back again you know like once it's in that shared universe in these big companies it's there somebody's going to pick it out i mean i've seen that just with amadeus cho you know like stuff that you know other other people have picked up amadeus and done stuff with him you know they came to me to say hey would you like to write amadeus cho as the hulk you know what i'm saying it's like it's that, that character is is bigger than you know it's It's not just about an individual creator anymore. It's about having put something out there that, that other folks want to play with. And then it can, you know, and then who knows what it can, what it become in the fullness of time. So it's all good. So thank you. You know, seriously, though, I mean, it's a roundabout way to say thanks for supporting these characters, because since you support them, we get to do them for however long we get to do them. And then there's always the chance for more amazing things to happen. I mean, look at Black Panther. Yeah, That's the biggest example yeah. right now. That's, that's going to be the that might be the biggest book in comics for a while. You know what I'm saying? Like, ta is amazing. He's killing it Number on 300,000
0: copies. Um, First weekend.
1: Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Exactly. You know, and so and, and that's, you know, so, you know, the time. The time is right at certain times, and sometimes we make the time be right earlier than, than uh, you know, just because we got to. Uh, But uh, all that kind of stuff just happens because people made it happen, you know. And that's what I mean. One of the glories of Kickstarter is that it gives you a tool to help you make things happen, you know. So it, it it's not like things happen overnight and suddenly you're, you know, but it's one of those things that lets you know folks come out of nowhere and. Start to get a leg up, you know, small project by small project, step by step, and build that audience so big things can ultimately happen.
0: This was such an incredibly insightful interview. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Can you tell us?
1: Thank you. Can can
0: you tell us where we can find you on the interwebs and give us all of your social media information?
1: My website is g r e g p a k. g r e g p a kcom I'm on Twitter. And where else am I? Okay. Yeah, so you can find Kickstarter Secrets at kickstarter-secrets.com. And then I've got a book coming out from Dark Horse called Kingsway West, which is about a Chinese gunslinger in the Old West searching for his wife uh, in a world overrun with magic. And And you'll want that. So, so check that out. I do want that. And that's that. it. That is at uh, kingswaywest.com. That's K-I-N-G-E-S-W-A-Y-W-E-S-T dot com.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Greg.
1: All right. Thank you, you. guys, right are great meeting you. Sure. Likewise. Thanks All so much, right.
0: guys. Have a great
2: night.
1: All right. You too. Bye. Take care.
2: Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.